Welcome to Discourse, a podcast that explores multiple perspectives to think deeply and connect honestly with each other. I'm Anne Song. And I'm Sarika Narainsing. On the agenda today, Anne and I are discussing a chapter from Indigenous Rights, a book by Metis intellectual and writer Chelsea Vowell. The chapter is titled, What is Cultural Appropriation? So Anne, it's no surprise what this chapter is really about. Um, I'm curious, though, what drew you to this contentious and controversial issue? Well, Sarika, I think this is a very hot-button topic, and I'm actually borrowing that phrase from Chelsea Vowell herself. Um, it's a really contentious topic because there is just such wildly divergent views about it. Um, actually, recently, in October 15 um, of this year, in the Toronto Star, there was an article published, The Halloween Ethnopolice Frightened Me, by a journalist and writer from Ottawa named Kate Jamet. And basically, in this article, she talks about how, you know, her four-year-old daughter went to school dressed as a native princess, and how her teacher sent her back home, and how problematic she thought that was, because she thought there was this quote-unquote barrier of race that was getting in the way between her child um, and what she could and could not do uh, in terms of identifying with other people and imagining herself in the position of other people. And I was really thinking about how, you know what, that's a kind of a typical response we get from a lot of our students when it comes to this topic. A lot of people feel like, well, it's just Halloween or why are we talking about race or why do we have to look at it this way? Um... Yeah, so it's actually, I think, when it, with the topic of cultural appropriation, it really comes down to, it's a conversation about race and power. And I think it reveals a lot about our worldviews and the way we look at things, whether or not we think that we live in a world of equity where everybody is treated equally, everybody has equal access, and cultural exchanges then become um, equal and fair. Or do you think we live in a world where certain groups are preferred and privileged and prioritized and therefore there's a power dynamic at play and where that cultural exchange is not equal. So yeah, we have all sorts of views and you know it's something that our students also, we see in our students and I was really looking for kind of a comprehensive piece that explores this very carefully, um, methodically from all perspectives uh, so that we really have an opportunity to think about it and understand it. What drew you to this topic, Sarika? Well, I think aside from the fact that I really do trust your uh, selection of readings, um, for me, I think the issue of cultural appropriation, like you said, yeah, it is an issue of like race and power. And really and truly, it's about like doing the right thing hmm. and just being a good person, right? So I do... Um, like someone who cares. Someone who cares about other people and like... I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing to question whether or not you are offending someone. Um, if anything, that's that's good. It's self-awareness. Um, so personally, I wanted to learn from Chelsea Val, you know, how to engage with this topic logically and rationally. I think very often uh, because I sometimes I don't know if I'm culturally appropriating, and I say that because. I didn't really grow up in an Indian, like, quote-unquote, Indian household or a Chinese household. Mm -hmm. But I think people assume that I should have that cultural connection to those ethnicities. Um, So if I do eat Chinese food or I do claim to be Chinese or or Indian or Caribbean, sometimes I feel like, am I an imposter? I think that's a fantastic point. Like, I think there's often this weird pressure to represent 
like if you are of from that culture to represent and be an expert of it and know everything about it so then when you don't you feel really lost and you feel like oh my goodness am I not fulfilling my responsibilities and I think that's the kind of pressure sometimes we get to from our students I'm like oh so you must be an expert of cultural appropriation because you're a person of color or like maybe you've been culturally appropriated like your cultures have been but like we can also appropriate like mm-hmm. we are very much like that's a risk we take too and we're still learning too and that's what's so interesting about Chelsea Vowles because she does a great job well in our opinions I know this um, breaking it down so we don't have to just to add to that um, another thing that I really wanted to get like take away from Chelsea Vowles piece is you know how do I equip students or offer students the language to defend or articulate how they feel when they see their culture being appropriated because mm-hmm. I do recall a couple of semesters ago, a, a student coming up to me just one-on-one saying, you know, quote, they don't get it. And that was in reference to a classroom discussion in which um, someone basically said and justified uh, wearing a headdress during Halloween because that's the whole point of Halloween, they said, mm-hmm. like to wear a costume. And my student was really frustrated and felt really hurt because they just felt like my colleagues, my peers don't get it. Like they don't understand why this is important to me. Right. And they just felt so helpless, like nothing was going to change. So I think for me, I wanted to learn like how to, how to articulate that. another question for you before we jump into Chelsea Vowell. In what ways do you think your own biases as a reader, also informed by your social position or social identity, how does that impact the way you read Chelsea Vowell? Mm, I'm so glad you brought this up because I am totally on her side. And I knew that I was going to be on her side even before I actually read the chapter. <laughs> so that's really problematic, I think, because... You know, those are my biases getting in the way. So it's really hard for me, or it was really hard for me to get out of my own self, my own social position, and interrogate or question why I was so eager to be on her side. Hmm. Um, and it's a very moral question, right? It's, it's very much rooted in what is, quote, right and what is wrong. What is right and wrong for you. Yeah, and like also what I would suggest people do i think the same uh thing for myself uh definitely uh, before even walking into chelsea vowel's piece i knew i would agree with her (laughs) so that definitely is a bias that i carry when i as i walk in and um yeah it's like it's and it's the same thing for our students right like when you have a certain opinion about a topic and it's like these are hot topics we immediately respond to it and we have like this gut reaction and that does get in the way sometimes of us being able to critique a piece something that you know we tell our students all the time but keep in mind like if you are our student listening to this we as instructors this is something that we deal with too we got to keep ourselves in check interesting that you say this because you know would you have ever anticipated uh, anyone taking offense to her tone because i have heard some people saying like chelsea vowel's tone is really aggressive but i was totally into it like I loved her aggression generally speaking I find writers who may come off as aggressive like I just think they're just being straightforward I think that's you know we've seen other readings in our course 
um, where, yeah, like direct, straightforward. I don't like wishy-washy people <laughs> in general. So I don't like wishy-washy tones um, it, when writers are kind of trying to appease everyone. Yeah. I'd like that when they're straightforward and direct, and I don't think that's aggressive at all. Yeah, totally. If anything, I kind of thought that she was actually very passionate about her topic and very much invested in her topic. Um, I think sometimes when we interpret things as being aggressive, it also does force us to question why we interpret it as aggression. Okay, so in our classes, we really do focus on uh, rhetorical modes of persuasion, so particularly logos, ethos, and pathos. And Chelsea Vowell's The Strength of Her Chapter on Cultural Appropriation does really lie in her logical mode of persuasion. So let's focus on her logical appeal first. Is there a section that you really felt, wow, like this is logos really at work and it's extremely effective and it's creating this very compelling, convincing and meaningful argument? I think Chelsea Vowell does a fantastic job establishing and building logos right from the beginning in her introductory section. Totally agree. Her purpose is so clear. She very clearly looks at this is what the discussion is. It's a hot button topic. She anticipates the fact that people are going to be um, probably pretty upset with her. And then she, she very logically calls our attention to what the problem is. Okay, the problem is in this discussion, we are all getting heated up, but that's only because we lack a common understanding of what cultural appropriation is. So by identifying the gap in the discussion, Chelsea Vowell is always creating a very meaningful Uh, argument that's pushing the conversation forward. She's filling the gap essentially, right? So now her purpose is to define cultural appropriation by reaching a common understanding with her audience. Yeah, so just to um, read a quote from that intersection that we appreciated so much. This is what she says. This is page 46. There is no common sense because our viewpoints on the subject can and will diverge radically and we lack a common understanding. It shouldn't need stating that I am not presenting myself as an authority on this, but I found I need I do need to include this disclaimer. Much like a chapter on what to call us, I present with you my thoughts on the matter, recognizing their legitimate arguments for and against my various positions. In short, my friend, this issue isn't easy for anyone. Not for me, not for you. If easy answers are what you seek, I shall leave you disappointed. I promise. End quote. So again, just to emphasize what you're saying, that there's her quotation there. Um, she is very clear on, look, I'm adding to this conversation. I'm not pretending to be an expert, but here I have something valuable to offer you based on this gap that I see, and I want to create this common understanding. And she's very honest, too, in that it's not an easy topic. Mm-hmm. You might walk away from this a little bit angry, and mm-hmm. I know that. I anticipate that. But here I am to, uh, with a goal in mind. And at the very end of that section, she says... Quote, consider this entire chapter an add-on to the larger discussion rather than a complete encapsulation of it, end quote. So again, this is the kind of thesis that we want our students to emulate. Look for a gap in the research, something that's missing. Because, I mean, let's be honest, cultural appropriation is a topic that so many people have already talked about, uh, written about. It's just kind of overdone. But she's saying, I have something a little bit different that I want to say to add to this. 
And that's exactly the kind of thesis we want in our students. It's the first week that she establishes logos. And then she moves on to a section called, quote, knee-jerk arguments to avoid if you give two craps, end quote. So this is a section where she actually establishes who her audience is going to be. Yeah, so... In this section, I really loved how she shaped her audience. Uh, For me, I thought that she was speaking to someone who maybe is guilty of cultural appropriation, um, but is open to learning about cultural appropriation. Okay, so what I mean by that is, in this section, knee-jerk arguments to avoid, Chelsea Vowell summarizes um, what I would say is a lot of the common emotional and defensive responses that I've heard numerous times. Things like, quote, I'm just showing my appreciation for the culture. <laughs> right? Like that really defensive. Classic. 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 Um, what's another really good one? Quote, all cultures borrow from one another. Or, lovely. Quote, I'm an artist and I draw inspiration from everything around me. Artistic freedom! Um... I mean, I say that mockingly because I think Chelsea Val is also mocking this monstrous response, right? And I say monstrous in the sense that um, she herself says it's like a hydra. Like, you can just chop one head off and then there's like another rebuttal. Um, But they're not even logical rebuttals. It's always sort of an emotional and defensive response to this claim that you're appropriating my culture, meaning you're using my culture inappropriately. Right, and I definitely agree with you that she's probably speaking to uh, people who don't get it, but Mm -hmm. who are open to learning because, yeah, she talks about how, like, she's just so tired of these responses, right? She's like, I'm exhausted. I've heard it all. I don't really want to engage. Like, please hear me out. I'm going to show you something a little bit different. She's definitely not preaching to the choir because if she is, like, she wouldn't have to go through these things. But she is definitely here breaking it down uh, for those, you know, people who are reading this might think, oh, crap, like, I think this or I say this, right? Um, I had a student once who said to me that, you know, maybe she's also talking to people who are completely on the defensive mode, who, like, are not willing to learn, perhaps, either. Mm -hmm. But she is reaching out to them because she kind of shames them. There's a part here she says, quote, if you really care about this issue, you'll move beyond these points and have an honest conversation. If you don't care about the issue, why are you reading this anyways? Just admit you don't care if if what you do offends someone and move on. So really in this quotation, she is shaming folks who are actually thinking these things, right? So maybe people like Kate Jamet, who wrote that Toronto Star article, maybe it will compel her to read forward. I don't know. But definitely one of my students, she was telling me like, you know what? I don't know much about this topic. I was saying some of these things. And when I read that, it made me want to read and find out why. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and you know, I think people lack shame. <laughs> you know, we don't have enough shame in the world. I'm curious though, can I ask you a question? What would you say to someone who says that Chelsea Vowell is alienating the very audience that she should be targeting? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's a risk she's taking here um, because there were a lot of students that I had in the past that said that this section just turned them off so fast that they didn't want to read the rest of the paper because it completely antagonized them. But you know what? That's a risk that she takes, and I think it's good for her for taking it. I think it's better to be really honest about your intentions than to try to manipulate and sway later on. She's very clear from the get-go, this is where I stand. This is where I think you should stand if you 
gave a crap. Yeah, I mean, personally, I I actually appreciate the integrity that she has, right? That ability to say, this is exactly what you're saying. This is where I stand. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to compromise my beliefs just to make you feel better about your indiscretion. And I think there's a definite need for that kind of unapologetic attitude more than ever. We're so used to apologizing and saying sorry uh, and feeling sorry even though we may have a certain conviction about certain things like this. Uh, we Again, like your other student who didn't have the language to articulate it, I wonder, like, when you do have the language, why the heck not? Mm-hmm. Right? Call people out for what it is. Okay, so I just want to pick up again on Chelsea Vowell's purpose. So again, to remind you, Her goal is to reach a common understanding. She says that the root of our problem, like the uh, animosity that we might have about this discussion, really just comes from the fact that we don't have a common understanding or a common definition of cultural appropriation. So that being said, on page 47 under her section called Restricted versus Unrestricted, I really appreciated her logical comparison between Canadian symbols that are what she calls restricted. Now restricted by that she means you have to have worked very hard and earned the right to use or claim those objects. So things like that are you know the Giller Prize. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's awarded to you based on merit. Um, A bachelor's degree right like you have to work for that. You gotta work for that. You you don't just buy bachelor degrees. On the other hand, she compares it to unrestricted symbols like the Canadian flag, which we as Canadians and even, you know, non-Canadians residents are entitled to use and to access. So by using Canadian symbols, she really is speaking to a very Canadian audience, right? So Chelsea Val is saying, you know, I get that you don't understand my symbols, so I'm not even going to start with the headdress. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to start with the eagle feather. I want to start with symbols that you know. And later on, she then brings into the discussion indigenous symbols. Absolutely. And it's a very strategic uh, move on her end. Mm -hmm. And I think it was really well done because uh, it helps us, again, like you said, rationally and logically see the connection. And once you appreciate, oh, yeah, you're right. I can't pretend I have a medical degree when I don't. Once you understand that certain things are bestowed upon you, given to you because you've earned it, and you've worked for it because it's been awarded to you, you know that then they are sacred. Actually, speaking of the word sacred, on page 48, here's another fantastic uh, moment where she establishes logos in her paper. She takes a moment to pause to redefine for us what she means actually by sacred. And so this is what we call meta-commentary, when an author helps us and teaches us how to interpret certain words. And this section is actually called, and I love this title, quote, stop rolling your eyes at the term sacred and think important instead, end quote. And in this little section, she basically says, look, I know the word sacred had lots of religious connotations in it, whether that's a positive or negative thing for you, it kind of depends. Are you uh, religious? Are you Christian? Are you um, Muslim? Like, it depends who you are. Also, are you atheist? Because even if you are an atheist and you don't have certain religious beliefs, that in and of itself is a kind of belief, not having a belief, right? Mm-hmm. So regardless of what you are or where you stand religiously and what kinds of sets of beliefs you come with, she says, hold on, 
Don't keep in mind, keep in check your reader's bias there. Don't misinterpret me when I say sacred. All I mean is important. So don't just because I said the headdress is sacred, don't poo poo that and say, oh, well, I'm not religious, so it doesn't matter to me. Or, well, this might mean this in the Christian context and we allow blah, 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 whatever. She's saying, hold off on that thought. That's not what I mean. So I also really appreciate that, that she reminds us of our bias and tells us how she would like for us to read her. Oh, yeah. I loved this section. You know, we've gone to comedy and routinely we see religion being dragged through the mud. And it this was the one section that reminded me and made me go, ah, yeah, you know what? You're right. Maybe people don't understand the value, the importance of the headdress because maybe they're coming from, you know, a Judeo-Christian standpoint, which looks down on religions or spiritual beliefs that worship more than one God, right? And I mean, that's also very problematic because if we think about Mm -hmm. colonial history, the settlers who came and colonized Canada came thinking that they were going to enlighten the benighted native Mm -hmm. with Christian ideology, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we really think about it, our government, our educational system, it's all shaped in some way or another by Christianity. Absolutely. And so that bias is built into the text that we teach our students in elementary school even. So if you're coming with that bias and you maybe don't even know about it, or you're coming from the atheist perspective where it's like, I can't even see how this is important. Nothing is nothing is sacred. God is dead. You know, like that whole idea as well. Um, so I really love this section. Okay, so let's move on and talk about how she establishes and uses ethos to persuade the audience in this chapter. Yeah, actually, Chelsea Val, earlier on at the very beginning of her chapter, she does say um, that she is not an authority on the matter, uh, which is great because she's saying that, you know, this is something that we have to co-construct knowledge about. We It's open to discussion. Uh, she's open to negotiation. She's not going to let her own biases cloud uh, the discussion. And yet, she also positions herself as a very reliable and credible source. She's an expert in many ways on this topic. Even the fact that she can anticipate the counter-argument. She can anticipate how we are going to emotionally respond to her discussion, I think, does suggest that. Yeah, she knows what she's talking about, and she's very well-versed in this discussion. Absolutely. In that intro section, she's able to really establish logos and ethos there. One of the things that we talk about also with our students when we talk about ethos is how the author tries to appeal to the audience's trust in the writer's ethical character. And if you look at her entire chapter, there are several sections where she reminds us of what she's trying to do here and she makes it very clear to us that um, it's a moral issue and that her position is a moral one it's a moral stance there's a section um, on page 49 where she talks about geisha culture japanese geisha culture and the different ways in which it's been culturally appropriated over time not only by people outside of the japanese culture but but japanese people themselves and there's a section where she says, look, just because people of that culture do it, it does not give you the license to go and do it either. And she says, quote, we're trying to become better people, aren't we? End quote. And she has this rhetorical question in there. 
How did you feel about that, Sarika? I loved it because for me, you know, when people say, oh, well, you know, you're being too sensitive or, you know, you know, people can't make jokes about anything these days, things like this. I just feel like it's not that I want to like crash your party. I'm just trying to remind you that we're here to be good people. I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I think at the very fundamental, at the very basic level, we're trying to be good to each other. Right. So here she really builds her credibility by reminding us, hey, look, I care. I care about this issue. And I'm not just speaking about indigenous issues here when I speak of cultural appropriation. I'm talking about all cultures. And she knows that she also runs the risk of being an appropriator and falling into this trap where she herself becomes a monster, right? Or she herself becomes violent. Um, And I use that word violent because later on, we'll talk about this in a sec, but she does refer to cultural appropriation as a kind of a colonial violence. So the very fact that she's showing us that she cares, again, helps the reader trust her. And I'm so glad actually brought that up about how she also positions herself as potentially being an appropriator. Um, And I thought that was a really brilliant move on her part. On page 48, under respectful access, you know, she talks about how we would all really appreciate the amazing fabrics of saris, but that she herself would be uncomfortable wearing one. And it was such a relatable moment. I felt that she really built her ethos here, her credibility as a person, because she wasn't trying to say, I am morally superior to you. She's saying, you know, I am like you. We both run the risk of being appropriators. And I really like this section too, because sometimes I think students think it's about white people versus people of color or non-black POCs or or indigenous people. But it's not a dichotomy between white people Mm -hmm. and everyone else, Mm -hmm. right? People of color can appropriate as well. Mm -hmm. We all have to be good people. Absolutely. And I think actually that's where the ethos here bleeds into her use of pathos because after she positions herself as, um, look, I want, I'm just trying to be a better person. And I hope you are too. She tries to appeal to our emotions and our values. She reminds us, what are your values? There's a moment of self-reflection here, right? And that's where her pathos actually um, works really well. To give you a specific example, I want to readdress the part uh, where she talks about colonial violence. There's a section on page 48 um, where she talks about the Maori and how they have a sacred tattoo, which they have adapted and it's now called the kirituai so that it's no longer sacrilegious when people put it on their bodies people outsiders who are non non maori uh, so they've adapted to this interest um, it, it was a way for them to protect their symbols but also allow other people to respectfully access them and she does at the end of that section say you know what if a group decides to do that great that is their choice and that is their prerogative to do so however If outsiders impose that and pressure for that change, that is not okay. And she says here very clearly, quote, even in cases where they do not have this understanding, the imposition of change on a group replicates colonial violence in a way no ally or supporter of a group should ever engage in. If a group does not wish to adapt to the interests of outsiders, that is their choice and their right, end quote. I really like the way she used the word colonial violence there. I mean, what do you think of when you think of colonial violence? Because a lot of my students who read this were like, whoa, why would you connect cultural appropriation to colonial violence? Is that really the same thing? That's interesting. Um, I mean, I think that for me, but that's purely because because of where I'm from and like my family and whatnot. For me, colonial violence, there's so many images that come to mind. I think about 
the slave trade ships. I think about indentured workers. I think about settlers. I think about, you know, colonizers with their blankets, like intentionally, deliberately spreading diseases. I think about rape. I also think about genocide, um, displacement, right? Stripping people of their language. These are all examples of colonial violence. But here, Chelsea Vowell is saying, when you try to take a symbol from someone else or you appropriate, that is also colonial violence, right? It creates a certain emotion. It tugs at our heart in a certain way, doesn't it, when she uses that phrase? It's interesting because, you know, I'm reading this this novel called Little Brother by Cory Doctorow, and it's all about privacy mm. and the right to have your own things and to decide, hey, what am I going to have for lunch? Like, just that little decision, the power that comes from independence. You know, I was talking to my students who are like 12 years old and I was like well what would you say if I had access to all of your passwords your phones everything what if I had access to everything and my one student he said you know I'd be really upset but I was like but why why would you be upset he's like well that's your those are my rights Hmm. it's not like I have anything to hide necessarily but it's just privacy this is mine and I felt when I read Chelsea Vowell's section here, that's for me what it kind of triggered, like the right to decide as a community what your future, your present, and your past is going to be like and it's going to look like. And I think the colonial violence comes from stealing and from taking and from making decisions for other people. So colonial violence as a kind of stealing and taking away one's autonomy mm-hmm. and independence and the right to self-determination. That's right. And so to bring this all back, you know, the, the conversation about collective rights and self-determination, to bring that back to pathos, what Chelsea Val essentially does, especially in her section on page 47 called Cheapen the Symbol, Cheapen the Achievement, is she reminds us and makes us really think about when we talk about collective rights, individual rights, human rights, we also have to acknowledge that if Canadians have this right to determine and decide how Canadian symbols are interpreted, why do people resist when First Nations, Métis, Inuit people want to decide for themselves how their symbols are used and interpreted? So I think for me, that's the distinction between a nation and a nation state. So, you know, to go back to history, grade 10, uh, a nation state is essentially, you know, the formal government. But a nation is a group of people that share a common ethnicity, a common culture, a common language that binds them together. And they have and should have the right to determine their own future as a nation. We think back to even the origins of World War One. World War I started because empires, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, was trying to take away and suffocate the rights of nations to decide for themselves who they were going to align themselves with. And so this whole section with Chelsea Vowell talking about collective rights, for me that really tugged at colonialism and imperialism and empires just swallowing up people and their human rights. And again, she reminds us, if we care about human rights... Mm -hmm then we should care about these issues. That cultural appropriation is nothing, is not a topic that you just throw under the rug and say, oh, whatever, it's Halloween, people are going to talk about this again, um, as they always do. You need to take it more seriously, right? And that's, I think, she does successfully achieve that by using words that 
tug at our hearts and make us think about our values. Yeah, and just to kind of make another comparison, I think that the reflex that we have sometimes to say, oh, well, it's just one time. I think when you really compound all those little one times, you see the magnitude of the violence. We think even about the violence that we do to the earth. We think, oh, well, it's just one can that we're throwing in the garbage and not recycling. Well, let's add all those up. That's an excellent point. Um, And just to add to that, one final example that we want to give about pathos is on page 49, where she really also shames our readers to think about why we feel like we can get away with certain things or why we feel whether that's a can that we don't recycle or whether that's cultural appropriation um you know or borrowing and misrepresenting things whatever it is she asks us to think about why do you feel so entitled to certain things that are not yours or that hurt the earth or hurt other people Right, so she says um, on the top of page 49, there's such a powerful section here. I'll, I'll read it from her. Quote, let me reiterate, feeling a deep appreciation for a culture not your own may require you to refrain from immersing yourself in the culture in the manner you wish. Remaining an outsider in certain ways might be the most respectful way you engage with another culture. If that is not enough for you, then you need to explore why that is. What access do you think you're owed? Why? How have you earned it? Who could appropriately give it to you? And most important, what would further access do for people you claim to admire so much? End quote. I think that section really, again, reminds us that cultural appropriation is a moral issue. If you care about other people, if you care about people in your community and are cognizant of the fact that your actions and your choices have political implications that hurt other people and their identities, you should know better. Like, why do you feel like you have the right to take? So it's a moment of, again, getting us to self-reflect. That section was so powerful. It really made me sit down and like, Take a moment to digest this because it was like, wow, it was a punch. Yeah, I really appreciate this section too because I think I think Fowl is also kind of pointing us and questioning what does it mean to be an ally, hmm. right? Because I think sometimes we want to be allies. We want to support our peers. We want to support our friends. But that doesn't mean stealing the show. It doesn't mean, you know, ventriloquizing their voice and mm-hmm. silencing their voice mm-hmm. um, and, and stealing their thunder, right? Being an ally also just means sometimes you just stand beside someone and not in front of them. Before we tie up, I just want to ask you, is there something else that really stood out you about Chelsea Vowell's chapter. Yeah, there is. In her conclusion, um, she kind of reminds us that, you know, the talk about culture appropriation, it's not just an issue of ideas in a theoretical sense. Um, Going beyond just simply, uh, you know, morals and uh, ideas and like, because sometimes these things are abstract, that it's hard for people to understand the tangible and the real very... um, political consequences that it has it has on people's lives uh, she reminds us and says when you culturally appropriate na- native culture and you have all these hashtags on twitter of like the wrong stuff and the wrong information the misrepresentations that hurts us 
because that hurts and impacts the way in which we connect with each other. Uh, indigenous peoples in Canada have already experienced enough colonial trauma and that has caused families to separate and generations to fall apart. And, and when folks are using social platforms to really reconnect and find family and friends and learn accurate information and figure out accurate uh, and access those accurate resources, oftentimes it's through social, pla- social media platforms. But when hashtags that put the wrong information or culturally appropriated images or costumes are up there, it actually gets in the way in which people can connect and figure things out and uh, come together as a community. So she actually reminds us again, like we've been saying earlier, your personal choices, the small little things that you do, those have really big political implications and impacts. And I really, I really appreciated that. Yeah, Chelsea Vowell's incorporation and mentioning of social media just adds to the relevancy and currency of her overall chapter. Mm-hmm. And that's something I appreciate in general about Chelsea Vowell's chapter. Nothing is in there as filler. She's consistently using the actor voice. Everything that's logical is really reasonable. And even her use of pathos, it's not cheap emotional appeals. Mm-hmm. Like I know that in our class, we've we talked about Sanders, and we've talked about Stanley S. Scott, and the ways in which they have manipulated deliberately language in order to make the reader feel something. But Chelsea Vowell's use of pathos is to remind us of historical facts. It's not to thwart us or lead us down the wrong, down the wrong road. Um, so overall, I mean, I really did appreciate her chapter and the ways in which it made me think about why I don't know enough. And thank you again for thinking really deeply and connecting honestly with me about this topic. Thank you, Sarika. Until next time. Ciao.